Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is no explicit language. Think of it as like the page on a legal document that says, this page intentionally left blank. It's Friday, August 26th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I am fascinated by the student loan debate and the student loan policy. I haven't exactly figured out where I stand on it yet, but I'm not angrily opposed to it. I'm certainly not vehemently in favor of it. I'm somewhere in between, and I think that there's a cost-benefit analysis, and that's what I once again today want to talk about, because I do think that for some reason it wasn't the biggest story in the world yesterday, and maybe not today, but it's the most interesting story. It's the most interesting in terms of psychology and finances. So the facts are that all the good estimates say that this is going to cost between $300 billion and $500 billion over a decade. You know, 30 to $50 billion a year. We spend uh, $30 billion on the war in Ukraine. Ukraine. That's a lot, but we're spending it. Are you feeling the pinch of that spending as a regular taxpayer? It's kind of abstract and hard to tell. So it's something, please don't believe in MMT where you think it's nothing and convince yourself it's nothing. It is a cost. And of course, as we always have to do, we have to figure out what the benefits are. I have been noticing some very bad arguments that seem attractive. Some are farcically bad, but I want to acknowledge the better seeming ones. So on Twitter, there has been this trend, all the Republican elected officials who've come out against it. Some of them are direct beneficiaries of loans. I've even seen some journalists who work for publications or outlets that received PPP or other types of loans that have been forgiven. Those journalists, by the very dint of their working for the publications, are said to be hypocrites on this. But it's very different, right? The standard argument for taking a loan out for college and then ultimately having it forgiven from the person who objects to it might go, if we were to steel man that argument, as they say, and Someone went up to Elizabeth Warren and gave a version of this. I just want to ask one question. My daughter's getting out of school. I've saved all my money. She doesn't have any student loans. Am I going to get my money back? I looked at the finances of my family, and sadly, I decided that my daughter could not go to, maybe not college, but that particular college, that private university. My neighbor, in very similar circumstance, did the same thing, and he said, what the hell, we'll wing it. And then my neighbor bought a car or a nicer car than I did and was engaged in profligate spending. So what I did was I did without, I sacrificed because I was prudent, my neighbor didn't, and now my neighbor's being rewarded for that action. You know, that's happened somewhere in America, that exact set of circumstances apply. Now, the people who are criticizing, say, elected officials who had their loans forgiven are saying that they engaged in the exact same activity, but they did not. 
because PPP loans were forgiven because of what the economists call an exogenous event. And the exogenous event was the pandemic. And there are no two neighbors who were both deciding whether to open small businesses or two different kinds of restaurants, right? One Lebanese place, one Italian place on different ends of town. And the guy who wanted to invest in the Italian restaurant didn't say, I'm going to, it's going to be tough and we have to have a good year the first year, but I'm going to do it. And the guy who invested in the Lebanese restaurant looked and saw the same chances of success and said, I'm not going to do it. And then the Italian guy's restaurant got wrecked by the pandemic. It is not the case that the Lebanese restaurant guy was being prudent because part of his calculation was, and of course, we might have a once in a millennia global pandemic wipe things out. The idea of the PPP loans are no amount of planning, no amount of prudence, no amount of anything that any person could have done unless you work for a lab in Wuhan, hashtag allegedly, could have foreseen that exogenous event. That is different from what we're talking about with student loans. It doesn't mean it's entirely different. There is some argument against forgiving student loans that say when you take out a loan, you should always pay it back, full stop. You know, I think that's a poor argument. And if some were making that and then had a loan forgiven, that person would be a hypocrite. But there are fundamental differences. And it's not that everyone who is against the loan, if they are rich, if they went to college when they were poor, if they ever had a loan forgiven, that doesn't make them a hypocrite. This is a Twitter-based argument, and as we know, Twitter is for dunking. Twitter used to be a full-court game of basketball, then it became maybe a game of force. Now we've lowered the rims to nine feet, and we've installed a little trampoline in front, and we've all donned the outfit of the Phoenix Gorilla. So Twitter is for dunking, but these are generally bad arguments. It doesn't matter if Rob Portman or whoever, whatever elected official or journalist, once had a loan forgiven. The other thing we really have to think about with this is that there are price signals, and the reason that capitalism works to the extent that it does is that people make choices based on how expensive things are. And then when you go in and retroactively change those choices, it's going to disrupt things and it's going to create an incentive. And I think the best critique of this program is that to give forgiveness for loans in the past without doing anything to change the cost of college will make everyone who sets the prices for college be incentivized to raise them on the idea that, well, a past loan could be forgiven. And it will certainly change the calculations of those going to college or graduate school. Hey, there's a good chance this is all going to get wiped out. And that will affect and distort things. Again, it's not a total argument for looking at the people who did nothing wrong and found that their loans are a gigantic burden and the job market isn't what they were promised. But that's a reality. That is going to happen. That is how economics works. Let's take it away from college and good people and bad people. There's a Mazda dealership. And some people bought their Mazdas, but some people are leasing their Mazdas. And then if there was a gov, let's not even make it a government program, just a program that doesn't cost you or me a cent. There was a program that for some reason, everyone with a leased Mazda, let's say a crazy philanthropist says, my philanthropy is I'm going to buy out the lease of everyone with a leased Mazda. So for the next however many years on the lease, you don't have to make any payments. And there's an indication, you know what? And I might do it again. How would that affect the economics of Mazda buying and leasing going forward. Of course it would affect things. Many other people aren't going to buy a Mazda, which is the equivalent of, you know, not paying for college or not taking out a loans. And of course, Mazda is going to be greatly incentivized to be tempted to raise the price of Mazdas. Just that's how price signals work. Good arguments and bad arguments for the bill. Not everyone is a good person or a bad person in this argument, except 
I'm a good person and you are too, if you were at all edified by that and didn't have the inclination to don a gorilla costume. On the show today, it's a whole show. We're blowing out the spiel, or you consider what you're about to hear the spiel, because I have for a while been wanting to tackle and think about the issue of neurodiversity. I got a letter, an email from someone, because this is not 1987, an email who advised me as I was talking about issues of neurodiversity in the past. She said, I got it wrong. She advised me to check out the social model of disability, which is superior to the medical model you may be familiar with, where an individual's limitations are defined by the external world's inability to accommodate. This is highly relevant in speaking about neurodivergence, where so many people are only impaired to the extent that the world is arbitrary and inflexible to different ways of thinking and communicating. Otherwise, having a condition like ADHD can feel more like having superpowers. This is one, and I think a widely held explanation of what neurodiversity is, that we shouldn't pathologize, we shouldn't diagnose, we shouldn't look as ailments, such conditions, and maybe even that term is wrong, as ADHD or dyslexia or anything on the autism spectrum, and we probably don't even say spectrum anymore. On the other hand, there are plenty of people who say, well, a lot of these things can be corrected or improved or diagnosed, and that would greatly help the person with it. And plus, there are versions of all of these, and let's put certain types of mental illness into it, that really do need to be treated for everyone's sake. So I have two representatives of each side of that debate, and we're going to have a debate, but it's more of a discussion on the show. First, Devin Price, who's a social psychologist, a writer and activist, and professor at Loyola University of Chicago. He is the author most recently of the book, Unmasking Autism. And he's going to be joined by Freddie DeBoer, who wrote The Cult of Smart, has an upcoming book called No Justice, No Peace, No Progress. He's a brilliant substacker, and he has bipolar disorder, which has greatly affected him. And he is of the camp that this celebration of neurodiversity has a lot of harm that comes along with it. Like I said, I really wanted it to be a debate, although a civil debate. I think it became more of a discussion. But if you can listen for the points of disagreement, I think that they do what I wanted them to do, Devin and Freddie do. They embody two rational poles of this discussion, which we enjoin henceforth. Freddie DeBoer, Devin Price, up next. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I started being interested in the issue or concept of neurodiversity after a listener got in touch with me telling me I used the phrase wrong. I have to admit, I was thinking of it more of, oh, just a uh, garden variety or not too threatening concept. Like, let's not stigmatize those who have something like ADHD or maybe a mild form of autism. I realized those phrases that I just said would probably offend one of my, let us call it panel participants, Devin 
Price. Devin is a social psychologist and professor at Loyola University of Chicago's School of Continuing and Professional Studies. He is the author of Laziness Does Not Exist and Unmasking Autism, The Power of Embracing Our Hidden Neurodiversity. Also joining me is Freddie DeBoer. He is the author of The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice and the forthcoming No Justice, No Peace, No Progress, title subject to change. I should also mention, for the purposes of this conversation, that Freddie has written such articles as Why Do Neurodiversity Activists Claim Suffering is Beautiful and The People Hurt by the It's a Beautiful Journey School of Mental Health are the people with mental disorders. He's also written about his severe bipolar disorder, his institutionalization. Devin, welcome to The Gist. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. And Freddie, welcome to The Gist. Hi, thanks for having me. So Devin, I want to start with you, and I think maybe a couple questions even before we get to Freddie. What's your definition of neurodiversity? And tell me how that definition advances uh, the experience of all of us, the neurodiverse and the neurotypical. Yeah, um, so it's kind of always shifting, I think, but um, neurodiversity for me just means anyone who kind of diverges from um, the societal standard of how people are supposed to think act and feel. And when you hear that, if you say, well, isn't that everyone? I think that's kind of partially the point that everyone experiences, you know, emotions, thoughts, and and behavior a little bit differently. Everyone's kind of punished by having really narrow societal standards of how people are supposed to comport themselves. Um, And so um, the term was originally coined to apply to autistic people, ADHDers, people with dyslexia, and over the years has been kind of broadened to apply to really anyone with any mental illness or anybody who could be stigmatized as having mental illness because these things can be pretty fuzzy, actually. So do you not believe there is a valid category of mental illness? It's just such a blanket statement, mental illness. I mean, like, it depends on what you're asking with that question. Do you think there's such a thing as schizophrenia? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of these categories. And, and 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 I would say, and is that a mental illness worthy of treatment? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and I think, you know, ADHD is real, even though we also have a lot more um, kind of debates and conversations about how much is like where we draw the line for ADHD affected by technology, affected by culture, affected by educational standards, you know. So there's both fuzziness and there is clear cut instances of suffering and people who want medication and benefit from medication. And that's where kind of these conversations get so messy, I think, because there are a lot of cases where what's traditionally been called the medical model really does apply to people's lives. And they see and experience mental illness as a medical condition that needs medical treatment. And then there are people who experience it more under what's called the social model and see it as more that their suffering comes from being stigmatized. And there isn't always a clear cut line between those two groups either. Yes, but I really want to draw you out on this, Devin, because so far you're articulating to me what seems very sensible. I would characterize it as we perhaps overstigmatize and uh, overdiagnose mild cases. But you have written the concept of neurodiversity and the process of psychiatric diagnosis are fundamentally incompatible with each other. Either you actually believe autism, ADHD, etc., are neutral sources of diversity deserving of acceptance in society, or you think they are disorders that must be diagnosed, but it makes no sense to try and claim both those things simultaneously. That's what I that's why I wanted to have you on. You seem to take the idea to its logical conclusion, it strikes me as. Can you talk about 
what you're stating, it was in, I think, a tweet originally. Yeah, yeah. So that tweet is um, pointing out that there is a lot of inconsistency in how, um, and it's really responding to a lot of people in the autism and ADHD self-advocacy worlds online who um, people have a really tangled up notion of neurodiversity, even people in our community, where there are a lot of people who um, on one hand, they'll say they kind of embrace the idea of neurodiversity, that we can think of these conditions as neutral sources of human difference, but then they'll still um, like really like just as someone who's like a semi-public face of this topic, they'll come to me asking for advice on how to get diagnosed and how to kind of, you know, prove that they really are within this community when a lot of my writing is really clear that um, in autism in particular, our diagnostic tools are not good, especially for marginalized populations and adults. And so if you really believe that um, being autistic is just a neutral source of human diversity and you are an adult and a diagnosis wouldn't really unlock too many benefits anyway, which happens to be the case with autism in adults, um, why would you be pursuing a diagnosis? Why would you be trying to treat it as a pathology when that hasn't been, you know, for these kinds of people that are reaching out to me, their life experience of it? Um, so yeah, so this is something that is even in the neurodiversity kind of advocacy world and online, there are people who say that they're advocates for that point of view who are still also really still thinking under kind of a medical or pathology model um, and seeing their disability or their mental illness as something to be diagnosed. Um, and a lot of people somehow kind of think both of those things at the same time. Freddie, is, is Devin saying much that you disagree with? I think actually we agree on a bunch of things. I mean, my, my um, essential uh, first point is always to say that, like, look, I want people to do what works for them. And there's people out there who identify as neurodiverse and who don't want to see their particular condition as something pathological, as an illness. If that works for them, if that is genuinely helping them in their life, in, emotionally, in terms of the management of their day-to-day -day life, then God bless them. That's fine. Um, my beef with neurodiversity is that I think that for many people, um, that approach is not working, um, but it has become a very socially common kind of a thing in certain uh, venues, particularly in social media and particularly among the youth. And my own personal uh, story of 20 years of managing a, a psychotic disorder, for me, um, identifying with the illness has always been bad for me. Whereas what has worked for me is seeing it as no different than psoriasis or irritable bowel syndrome or um, <clears throat> uh, any other chronic disorder that has to be managed rather than cured. To For me, the more that I see my um, mental illness as something that is a, a, a medical problem that I have to deal with and that will crop up again and again, but which is not fundamental or core to my being or my identity, that's been better for me in terms of staying on meds, seeing my doctor, working the program. Because the problem with these things becoming identities is that for one thing, you then therefore have less incentive to get well. Right. So if I look at, for example, the proliferation of young people performing their mental illnesses on TikTok, if you become viral as someone with dissociative identity disorder or borderline personality disorder, etc., uh, and <clears throat> that is sort of your online identity, um, your incentive is now to manage it 
worse rather than better, right? Because the more that you sort of portray that disorder, the more that the symptoms are becoming more and more outsized and more and more visible, the more viral you become. And so I, I, I do, I worry for these people, especially because um, eventually you do get tired of the of the illness. It might seem like these things are quite... Uh, energizing to young people when they have a diagnosis now and they can sort of use that to sort of understand their problems. But when you get to a certain age, and I'm a man of a certain age at 41, um, it stops being sexy. And if you're holding on to it as being core to your personality or core to your identity, I think it's going to be harder for you to just say, okay, look, I got this thing. It's no good. It doesn't help me very much, but I have to deal with it and manage it. What are the ways that I can best manage it so I can get about with the business of, of doing life? And unfortunately, if you think that your identity is all you are, your, your, your illness identity, your neurodiverse identity, that's going to get in the way of that effort. Devin, do you think uh, Freddie is erecting a straw man there? Um, no, I've definitely seen um, the kind of dynamic that that he's talking about here. The thing that's interesting is I've seen it both in people who approach mental illness as identity and people who kind of talk about their mental illness as this like third party that's inside of them. So you'll see this a lot, for example, um, in young people online talking about ADHD. They'll say, you know, well, I wanted to do this, but ADHD wouldn't let me. Or, you know, sometimes people will talk about, um, you know, borderline um, or bipolar in that way, where they're kind of personifying um, the mental illness as this thing that they have no control over. So that seems to be very um, psychologically unhealthy for people as well. And we do have some some research in the literature um, kind of pointing to when people see um, mental illness as this thing that they're stuck with that's kind of added on to their life that seems to be um, very, have negative effects for people's um, experience of stigma, self-esteem, medication adherence, if that's um, the kind of program that they're on. Some of these things Freddie was just talking about. Um, can it happen with identifying and integrating mental, illnor, mental illness into your self-concept too, the way he's talking about? Um, I think so, but I think there's a distinction between um, identifying as I have this illness, I have this this mental illness that's a big part of how I see myself, and having it be a more um, absorbed part of your full identity. Um, and that's something that I've noticed just even myself as someone who found out um, I was autistic, you know, in my late 20s. The first few years you see everything through that lens because it's this big revelation of, oh, I do this because I'm autistic. I do this because I have ADHD. Over time, I think a lot of people, and people are really vocal and really annoying online when they're going through that phase. Um, but I think a lot of people over time, they move past it and do begin to see it as, this is something that I deal with in both good and bad or completely neutral, whatever ways. And it just becomes part of your complete self-concept a little bit more, I think. But what about, I mean, Freddie said if it works for the, them, if it works for the individual to treat their mental illness as a disability that should be treated or cured, uh, I, I think Freddie has done that with his mental illness and he encourages others to do so. But by your writing, Dr. Price, I don't think you do. Well, with autism, it really doesn't apply. Um, I think there's a big difference between um, bipolar one, especially where I think most people, a lot of people benefit from from medication and are pretty vocal about what a difference in that makes in their life circumstances versus autism, where there is no medication for autism. It's a really pervasive disability that affects 
sensory issues, how you socialize, how you think. Um, and most of us um, in the autism self-advocacy world, we really do see it as a core part of our identities because it affects us so pervasively. Um, does that mean that our um, community doesn't have toxic positivity where like there's some pressure to pretend that we always love being autistic? We definitely have that. That's definitely a thing. Um, but I think most of us, um, there's no pursuit for any kind of therapy that's going to make us non-autistic because the only therapy like that that ever existed, um, applied behavioral analysis, was really just literally spraying kids with water if they acted weird. You know, it was just behavioral conditioning to force kids to look more normal. There's no really um, sign that we'll ever be able to cure autism. And I think most people in our community see that as a good thing because it is so multifaceted. Um, but again, I think this is just a really clear-cut example of where the social view of disability and the medical view of disability, um, they diver diverge for very different situations. Yeah, and I think that, like, to me, that maybe is part of my frustration sometimes with neurodiversity is because it's aggregating together things that are so different. Um, I, so uh, for listeners who don't know, Asperger's syndrome is no longer a DSM um, category in the Di Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness um, because, um, well, among other things, Asperger was a Nazi. Um, but um, they now recognize three levels of autism, level one, two, and three. And um, at the level one uh, level where people are able to live generally um, ordinary lives along with a set of uh, uh, personality and behavioral factors that are common to autism, um, I completely agree. I don't, I don't think anyone should be looking for a cure. And I think that um, we should definitely expand our uh, perception of what is socially a, a desirable behavior so that people feel less stigma. Um, however, of course, things are very different for, let's say, a level three, uh, uh, excuse me, um, autistic person who I know some kids, uh, uh, knew some kids like this when I used to work in a, a public school, um, who are the kind of kids who um, are completely nonverbal, so they, they can't communicate with verbal language. Um, often they will have um, self-injury behaviors, self-harming behaviors, re repetitively hitting their heads or biting their fingers, et cetera, et cetera, uh, who can't control their own bathroom functions, et cetera. Um, and so that's even within the sphere of autism. Those are two very different kind of lives where you can un understand why uh, the parents of a level three autistic child might want to uh, undertake some behavioral therapy to keep them from trying to bite off their fingers or whatever. Whereas to, I, I agree that it would be offensive to try to stamp the autism out of a level one autistic person. But even go beyond that, of course, neuro neurodiversity, depending on who you talk to, in, entails a whole lot of other things like ADHD, like dyslexia, like schizophrenia, like bipolar disorder. And so I think part of my frustration is it's often not clear to me um, what the value is in aggregating together so many profoundly different um, conditions that have such different um, realities in terms of whether or not we should want to cure anything. Um, and I will say that it can sometimes happen that people are rather uh, aggressive about the idea that uh, neurodivergent conditions are things that should not try to be cured because I would love very much if they would come up with a pill tomorrow that I could take once so I don't have to take eight pills a day anymore um, for the rest of my life. Um, and so I just think that um, 
you know, I think one of the things the internet does is it flattens and it tends to force everybody into the same vocabulary. And so to me, I understand the desire for people to feel like part of a broader community, especially when they've faced stigma. I just don't know what neurodiversity as, as a big umbrella term is really doing for anyone in a positive way. Then, at least to me, it prompts the question, okay, what's the harm? If everyone really is only talking about level one autism, where you gentlemen have uh, no disagreement, what's the harm? And I don't know, Devin, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe you look at level three autism as a totally different thing, do you? No, um, but I think Freddie makes some really salient points that have played out even in my own um, writing and work and kind of journey of like kind of coming into an autistic identity over the years. Um, because when I first um, found out I was autistic, I would write a lot of these very raw, raw, like, now I realize that this is why I'm good at this thing. Autism has given me these superpowers, which is this really like oversimplified narrative. But I think it's a stage of the process. I think it's like when somebody comes out of the closet as gay and then they can't gotcha. shut up about it because it's like, I've yeah, been repressing yeah. the side of myself and now I'm proud of it and I'm going to be obnoxious about it for a little while. But one time I wrote something like that on Tumblr. So that gives you a sense of the timing and somebody um, retweeted it and was like, this is stupid. I hate being autistic. How can you like say that we all need to view it this way? And I found out that this is someone who's a good friend of mine now. Um, his name's Taylor. He's a nonverbal, intellectually disabled autistic kid in his teens who he is really vocal about the fact that he wishes he wasn't autistic. He wishes that he, you know, if he could take a pill that would make him not autistic, he would. And he is someone who I have seen firsthand get harassed, get sent death threats, get doxxed by autistic people who have the very rah, rah, we're proud of being autistic and you aren't allowed to say this kind of point of view. And that's really distressing to me. Um, so I do know that that's a real thing. And I've also seen online the flip side where um, if you say anything that's critical of the idea of, of ADHD or talk about how is, – is there a cultural component to how many people are distracted right now? On the flip side of that, when you're saying that, like you get your mentions on Twitter or whatever flooded with people saying, I have this horrible dis disability. I, there's no way it's social. Like how can you say this? So I think there's actually kind of both people – pushing really hard to depathologize these things at all costs. And there are people who are still very invested in always seeing it as this biological pathology with no social component. Um, so the discourse is a mess for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the discourse is, I think maybe we're overemphasizing the role of Twitter, which has its own pathologies in real life. Uh, there was, Freddie, you wrote about this incident where at Harvard, um, some acclaimed experts were discussing in panel discussions treatment for autism, I think it was. And that was, that idea was shut down by members of the, uh, but members who of the community define themselves as neurodiverse under the idea that you can't talk about this or debate this as a disability. So that's not just does it work for you? What does the definition work for you? That's some people not allowing a differing definition to work for other people. So in the uh, in the, the the actual sort of capsule definition of what the panel was going to be, that was not mentioned that I saw. I think part of what was frustrating about that incident is precisely that um, you know, we didn't really know what was going to be in the panel because the panel hadn't happened yet. And it was basically talking in broad strokes about, okay, here's some ways in which uh, we can help the severely autistic. Um, and I'm just generally a guy who just thinks it's better to hear people out and listen to what they have to say than to shut it down uh, preemptively. But again, like, 
to me, the, the, the salient element of that is that the, the woman who spearheaded shutting it down is someone who is autistic, who is so high functioning that she was flourishing at Harvard, right? Um, where, uh, you know, I used to work in a um, public school district in a, a program, a special ed program, and there were a number of kids who were, who were nonverbal, uh, level three, now we would call them autistic. And um, their parents were very exhausted people who needed access to better resources, more government support for uh, trying to raise these kids that they had to provide with an immense amount of care. And to me, what I would ask of people like the Harvard students who protested the event is to remember that, um, you know, it can simultaneously be true that there's nothing wrong with you and we don't want you to change. But there are people who share the same broad uh, identity sort of category of autistic, which, you know, can vary dramatically from person to person, that we should try to remember that there are people within that world who want to be some, helped in some sense medically. Um, and I think the fixation on the term disability in and of itself can be um, unhelpful because, uh, you know, I think that it's easy to say that, you know, someone who keeps smashing his fingers into a table over and over again repetitively because of his severe autism, um, it, I'm sure no one would, would uh, object to calling that a disability. But again, we are looking at these at this spectrum and saying, like, this is a sort of thing that we can put the same consistent labels on. And I wish I had a more, a hotter take than just Sometimes things are different rather than the same. But I, I do think that this whole discourse, I think, um, really breaks down in this way. And, um, you know, I can say as a psychotic patient, right, I'm very often lumped in with uh, schizophrenia um, or schizoaffective disorder. Um, and But the experience is very, very different, right? So I think one thing that I often bring up to people who don't know much about these, these disabilities so um, there's this concept called uh, anosognosia, which is a super uh, shishi term for the fact that when people have a mental disorder but are unable to see the fact that they have a mental disorder. This is, in fact, extremely common with schizophrenia. Um, a large majority of schizophrenics um, are, even often when they're medicated, are unable to grasp the extent to which they have a, a, a mental illness or disability. However, a majority of bipolar patients don't suffer in that way. In other words, um, <clears throat> I've had four or five psychotic episodes in my life. Uh, during those episodes, um, I have been aware that something is badly wrong, but I, I can't simply stop it from happening. And that's a good example of where we have this sort of generalized cultural uh, sort of uh, idea about what it means to be mentally ill that often is not actually universal at all. And so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm here today just advocating for pulling things apart and not aggregating things that are not the same. And just to, to, to quickly say, um, you know, one thing that I always tell the young people who have recently been diagnosed, and I've heard from a lot of them in the last five years, is um, sooner or later, you still got to pay the rent. You know what I'm saying? Like at the bottom of all of this stuff, even if you're someone who really wants to celebrate your diagnosis, identify with the disorder, treat it as your identity, um, put it first in your sort of sense of self, put it on your Tinder bio, whatever, that's all cool sooner or later, right, you have to still sort of do 
the work of life, right? I think I think Devin's um, analogy to coming out as gay is a good one, right? And it's the sense in which this major thing happens to you and it's better afterwards and you now know something about yourself in a way that you didn't before and that's cool, but like that doesn't mean you have to stop, you can stop paying the rent, right? Like sooner or later, like just the work of doing the day-to-day work of life comes back to you. And again, in my experience, just as one person, um, thinking about my psychotic disorder as like psoriasis or irritable bowel syndrome or uh, epilepsy, et cetera, that is the more useful mental frame. Yeah. Yeah. I think the place where I really diverge is in seeing there can be value in us realizing we're part of a broader coalition that would benefit from a lot of the same gains in housing, in better Americans with Disabilities Act protections, because those are really hard to enforce, you know, anti-discrimination or ensuring that spaces are accessible, pushing for greater healthcare access and mental health care access. I think those should be kind of the end goals of neurodiversity as an approach. And I do think we get lost in the weeds and the kind of focus on individual identity and celebrating it too much. Um, and just to kind of complexify some of the things that Freddie, Freddie's talking about, um, and I, and I'm, I know he's well aware of this distinction too, but um, high functioning versus low functioning, whether it's schizophrenia or, or a psychotic disorder or whether it's autism, it's not a, a clear kind of categorical line. There are a lot of people who, um, let's say even in just with the autism example, people who can succeed at Harvard or hold down a job who need pretty regular assistance remembering to eat or keeping their houses clean or who can become nonverbal temporarily. And um, there are people like my friend Taylor, who very, very severely, severely disabled by whatever metric you would call it, you know, someone who self injures just to regulate his like stress levels. And this is still someone who was able to through talking online and talking with his family, but mostly talking to him, persuade me that my own perspective on autism as a unilaterally positive thing was mistaken. And so I think a lot of times um, what we really need from neurodiversity, if we're going to actually be a community, is we need to actually listen to and follow the lead of people like that because, um, you know, he's not incompetent, even though he is very intensely disabled and he has a different opinion of autism than many other really vocal autistics. He has competence, he has insight into his experience and knows what he wants and kind of feels and isn't usually listened to. And I think that's true of a lot of um, psychotic patients or people who have experienced psychosis. Um, You know, it's not a clear line. Um, And so it's not necessarily in my mind about dividing between the people for whom their disability isn't that big a deal. Maybe sometimes it's, it's even a good thing and they can be proud of that identity and the people who are suffering more. Um, it's definitely more of a spectrum and we do need to listen way more as a community to the people who are on the more um, debilitated end of that spectrum. And I think that would logically lead to talking about how are we going to, as a society, provide the services that people need when they have these disabilities? What are we going to do in terms of making education more accessible, making housing more accessible, um, and and those kinds of supports? Aren't the more disabled definitionally less able to participate in the conversation? I'm not even talking about the level three autistic people that are institutionalized who Freddie was talking about, but just your friend. I mean, he had to conquer a lot of technological hurdles that 
the rest of us wouldn't. And then when you also add on to that, there are probably many in the self-diagnosed ADHD or autistic community who might have very, very mild cases that maybe even a clinician would say, I don't even know if this qualifies. So to go back, if the idea is we have to listen to the most disabled, it's extra hard. There are, it's hard to hear their voices, uh, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard on both a systematic level and just on a real level of, you know, it takes more energy out of someone like Taylor to use the assistive communication device that he has. Um, And yeah, and so that's been something that there's been a lot of internal critique, even within um, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, ASAN, which is kind of the largest um, autistic-led advocacy group in the U.S. Um, There had to be a big push to really change who was in leadership in that organization to make sure that we had more nonverbal people in our leadership. Um, I think this is an ongoing conversation because it is true that the people who get heard and privileged the most in these conversations tend to be the ones who can do a show like this, who can provide a soundbite, who can present in a certain way and um, without it being as exhausting for them. Um, And yeah, yeah. So that's going to be something we're going to always be pushing up against those issues because there's a real bias towards people like me um, and people who see their neurodivergence as a positive um, because they, on a social and maybe even medical level, are less disabled um, or less severely so. Devin Price is a social psychologist and professor at Loyola University of Chicago School of Continuing and Professional Studies. He's the author of Unmasking Autism, The Power of Embracing Our Hidden Neurodiversity. And Freddie DeBoer is the author of The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. He also has a very successful substack. Thank you both for joining me for this uh, cup of coffee sprinkled with angel dust. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, the AP. 
Joel Patterson, the SP, and Michelle Pesca, MP. She's CEO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.